dung 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 under pressure it's how you feel sometimes when you're writing all of those grants it's true grants can be stressful fixed deadlines unanswered emails crazy application portals mm -hmm. how about unrealistic expectations from people who have no idea how the process works and that's just the tip of the iceberg ask us how we know not addressing these stressors can lead to serious burnout. But the D.H. Leonard Consulting Team doesn't believe that needs to be the case. They can help you through the entire grant life cycle, from grant readiness to grant management. If there's a part of grant seeking that is stressing you out, reach out to dhleonardconsulting.com to let them help take the stress out of grants. Dum, 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 dum. Kimberly Hayes-Vay-Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're listening to Season 5 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We're here to help you make sense of the complex world of grant writing and fundraising. Whether you work for a nonprofit or local government or are a consultant who serves them. On Fundraising Heyday, we will cover the how-tos because that is important and the how-tos change. But we also always want to explore the whys of things, W-H-Y-S of things, including poking the bear of inequity that roams freely in the forest of philanthropy. Yep, and we do this every two weeks with the help of experts in the field in our particular brand of entertainment, which if you don't know yet, could include songs and cheesy sound effects and the occasional y'all. Yep. Because learning doesn't have to be boring. So let's get to today's topic after a quick word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by our season five sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. Well, welcome back to the show, or if you're a first-time listener, thanks so much for tuning in. Today, you're going to have a special treat. Um, we're going to talk about how we're all getting asked to do more with less. I mean, I think that's always been happening, but it feels like it's been happening even more lately. It's been happening more, and the less is yes. less. The less is less. And there's, you know, everybody's worried about all the funding. Is there less funding to go around? And Grants and other donations tend to seem more complex and confusing, and it's not as straightforward. And there's all these changes in giving patterns that are, you know, always feel like it's coming around the corner. So what's the latest and greatest and thing that we need to keep up with? It's a lot. But fear not, general listeners. We have an expert on board today to talk us through some changes in the fundraising landscape. That's right. He's looking all sheepish because I can see him and you can't. <laughs> he really knows his business and I'm here to tell you about it with a brief bio. Today's guest brings a wealth of experience and knowledge around, well, wealth and charitable donations because I had to put in a dad pun. <laughs> Not a dad joke, but a dad pun. So Sharon Koshi joins us today. He is a certified fundraising executive, that's CFRE to you, chartered advisor in philanthropy, 
CAP, and AFP, Master Trainer. So lots of letters of important things going on here. He is the Chief Development Officer and Principal at Endowment Partners, an investment management firm that solely focuses on nonprofits, foundations, and endowments. He currently serves on the Global Board of the Association of Fundraising Professionals and is Chair of the Iowa Commission on Volunteer Service. It's also known as Volunteer Iowa, as well as eight other boards and commissions. Because once again, in a history of us having guests on here who are like slackers and don't do anything, we're just we're just going with the pattern. pattern. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So he's a certified scale architect, a certified mind genomics advisor, and holds advanced certifications of behavioral economics from Dan Ariely's Irrational Labs, as well as Harvard University. Sharon was also one of the most successful debating coaches in the United States and is author of one of the most widely used debating textbooks currently used. Amanda and I aren't even going to bring up a thing today. As <laughs> much as I love say, banter. Let me just say that I, I wish I'd known you back then because I got one B in college, one B. I was a straight A student until uh-huh. I took argumentation and debate. And Dr. Derryberry was so freaking tough. I'm not bitter. Dr. Derryberry. I know Dr. Derryberry. <gasps> Do you really? Absolutely. He's famous. <laughs> he gave me my one B. He's famous oh, to me too. <laughs> Y'all, this is this is big, and also Amanda is a really clean speaker, and by that I mean I'm the cuss bucket, and yes. she does maybe it. will maybe will say crap, mm-hmm. um, the word crap, and she just said freaking. So let us pause for a moment to understand how much this shook her all those years ago. I mean, it's but, 20 years later, and I still... that's okay. But, but, but hey, and guess what? Sherry oh. has 20 plus years of fundraising experience. Because I'm bringing it back. I'm bringing it back. Annual funds, major gifts, plan giving, capital campaigns. He is one of the most sought-after trainers and speakers in the nonprofit sector. He's personally raised more than $100 million. Lots of publications Uh, and talks, coaching and consulting. He lives in Iowa with his wife, Betsy. 2.3 kids. Of course, I have questions about that, particularly (laughs) 0.3. And their little dog, too, who had an adventure only this morning before we begin. So welcome, Sharon, and you and Amanda are going to have to get together about that debate because that's some deep, deep animosity that she's holding about the letter B. Absolutely. Did you go to SBU? I did. Yep. I'm an alumni of Southwest Baptist University. Absolutely. That's a small world ever knows like when i tell them where i went to college now that i live in georgia right everybody's like where and when i explain they're like why i'm like uh-huh. it was great <laughs> i'm sure it was i mean yeah I, I i know the guy who took over for bob um i don't know if he's there david? Anymore. It's a lifetime ago pardon david um hold please it'll come to me Yo, she's oh, gonna look it up while we get right. ready for our podcast yeah. So yeah, well, we'll dive into the podcast. We'll talk offline about SBU yeah, 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 and exactly, debate and exactly. my 89%. Ooh, she's got resentment, oh. y'all. All right. So we're going <laughs> to hop in with the questions because as a podcast listener myself, I feel you if you're listening and you're doing a particular chore that you don't want to do, which I imagine could be uh-huh. cutting the grass, could be folding the laundry. Um, you want to get to it. And while we are enjoying ourselves with our witty banner, you maybe want to know what the questions are or not. Oh, yeah, we should do something like that. Because we're That's- awfully we're <laughs> awfully cute and well accessorized today, so it may our presence may be present enough. But I'm gonna I'm gonna break that chain. I'm gonna hop in here with the very first question, which is a question we ask all of our guests in one fashion or another. So here 
we go. Sharon, will you be the first to break the long record of guests who say they fell into, found, or were told they would work in fundraising, or that maybe they'd be a good fit for this kind of work? Or did you know from birth that you wanted to work with nonprofits? Or did you pull a sword from the philosophy philanthropy stone, which is a word that I just made up? If y'all can't um, tell, Kimberly is highly caffeinated today, by yeah. the way. She is <laughs> on fire. Right. This is not normal cheering, but let's roll with it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, what is the line? So it's uh, uh, strange women in, pulling uh swords out of a lake are not a great way to i'm i can't remember the monty python line so oh, yeah, there's not no, a way to plan your future maybe i, I feel yeah. you though I, I can't remember it either so um no there was no there was no lady of the lake there's no excalibur um i started fundraising when i was in late high school early college like right actually right in college a friend of mine talked to me about um doing door knocking for campaigns. And so I cut my teeth on the mean streets of Minneapolis, knocking <laughs> on doors, raising money for human rights campaigns, Sierra Club, um, talking to people about giving. And I will tell you that you you learn a lot in life through rejection, right? You <laughs> learn a lot um, by getting told no. When you walk 200 doors in a neighborhood and get the door slammed in your face about 199 times um <laughs> you learn a lot a lot so that was my first introduction to fundraising and um i told someone um a little while ago that this is actually my first for-profit job this is the first time that i've had um a, a job in the for-profit sector so i've always been in some sort of nonprofit, mostly wow. in the director of development and, and fundraising. Um, but I did work for the National Speech and Debate Association, uh, Amanda. So that's Amanda, how I it's know. It's okay, Amanda. It's, We're it's here a, for it's you. A good thing. Yeah. yeah. So that's how I know Bob and, uh, and David yeah. and some of those other folks. Yeah. That is. Small world. Who knew? Yep. Well, and I can't, I mean, so it didn't start when you were 12, but still in college. That's, uh, so you kind of had early on yeah, compared to most of us who are like, yeah, something my boss told me. That's kind of sword in the stone territory. I mean, I, we're going to push you towards sword in the stone a okay. little bit. I'll, and I'll I'll just, just slightly. Absolutely. I'll very take good, it. Very good. Okay. <clears throat> so. Well, um, as chief development officer for endowment partners, you advise nonprofits and foundations on strategies for sustainability. So how should nonprofits particularly think differently about sustainability and investments, especially now and keeping an eye on the future. So okay. let me break that question into two parts. First around sustainability, because I think all organizations, all nonprofits um, are engaged in important work in their communities. And that work likely does not have an end. So a lot of um, a lot of the organizations that I've talked to have expressed some interest in ceasing to exist in, in some way, shape, or form, and I think that's interesting because unless you are trying to eliminate a disease like polio, for example, I'm I'm uh, I was on the board of Rotary and I, I termed off and polio polio eradication is one of their big priorities. So we've done a really good job at polio eradication, but we have not eliminated polio, right? There are still cases of polio. There are cases of polio in the United States, right? Right. right? So we're going to continue to do this. And, you know, March of Dimes has sort of evolved in that regard. Are there going to be 
some organizations that work themselves out of a job, absolutely. But when I think about most nonprofits, it's really about minimizing or addressing the need. So minimizing time spent in hunger, minimizing time spent in homelessness, um, continuing to produce great art and all of those types of things. So with that context in mind, sustainability is the trust currency of a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. We talk about what you are dealing with in your communities. The currency that you're transacting with is that trust that you will continue to solve that problem or address that problem into the future. And there are organizations that may have an opportunity to be uh, co-opted into state or federal um, funding and grant programs and, and things like that. And, and maybe it's an allocation out of the, the political space. But I think one of the things that we see a lot is that the political space as fragmented as it is today, there there isn't a guarantee that this will be a consistent funding source. You could be um, subject to the whims of whoever's in charge. And those are real needs that people have. So I believe that there is a core place in philanthropy in society to address these needs and to do so in a way that uh, that is always there, that addresses those needs in perpetuity. So then we bring in the economic turmoil that we're facing right now. And by the time this podcast drops, who knows what will have happened, but um, there are big warning signs right now around recession. And what I think a lot of commentators in the space, both on the fundraising side and on the marketing or the market's economic side will tell you is that most organizations are best off staying the course. So recessions on average last about 11 months. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how bad this will be or how long it will be. But if you are here for the long haul, if you're here for the next three, five, 30, 50, 100 years, then this is really a blip in the radar and um, on the radar. And a lot of people who have been in fundraising even longer than all of us combined have said things like, you know, been through the recession in 2008 and 2009 and weathered that storm. The data indicates that giving does decrease, but not in perpetuity, right? It, it bounces back. We had Giving USA indicated that we had um, a record-breaking philanthropic year. There's more to unpack there. But what we often talk about with boards and with nonprofits is really around that long-term vision for their organization as well as for their investments and thinking about how do we talk to donors today about casting that long-term vision, understanding that they could play a role in the organization 20, 40, mm -hmm. 50, 100 years from now. And that really is a magical opportunity for those relationships. It's a, it's a way of engaging them in something mm -hmm. bigger than themselves. And that's, that tends to create a lot of excitement among the donor community. That kind of flows into our next question that has to also do with passage of time and things happening and wealth right. being transferred. So I, I um, was doing a little bit of research, but also Sherian did the, the majority of the heavy lifting because he was talking about it in some podcasts and some articles. <laughs> so it was super easy. Um, 
as the as the world's oldest and crustiest Gen Xer, I am pleased to report that the, the, there's there's going to be a huge wealth transfer from baby boomers on to other folks whom they have designated as mm. recipients. Um, uh, amounts vary. Like Forbes was like yeah, it's sixteen, and, and then Wall Street Journal was a little bit higher, and then some folks said sixty, but it's trillion with a T. Mm-hmm. So. It's a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess you've made the point several times in, in other presentations, podcasts, and articles about, hey, nonprofits, you, you might want to make sure you can accept stock transfers and some mm-hmm. basic things that, that these gifts, this big transfer of wealth could take. I don't, sometimes with my clients, is, um, it's hard to have talks about long-term strategy, kind of what you were talking about before, because... So many nonprofits are focused on the right now, especially in an, an uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So how how can uh, people who might be sort of middle of the totem pole, your grant writers and development directors mm-hmm. and uh, fundraising officers, um, how can they help executive directors and board members understand the importance of long-term sustainability when, you know, payroll and utility bills and uh, mm-hmm. computers mm-hmm. at work are the focus mm-hmm. for now? Absolutely. Got to keep the lights on. So the short answer is listen to this podcast. (laughs) uh, Subscribe. And (laughs) I I got her to spit up. I almost teeth through my nose. My dear cherry, please continue. Please continue. (laughs) Um, So I think one of the pieces that we have to start with is this wealth transfer. So this has become, it's been all over the news, as you mentioned, it's uh, in major publications. It's important for people to understand one, I'm going to change my mind, two very important things. The first piece is that this is already happening. Mm-hmm. The first piece is that this is already happening. We have 10,000 baby boomers retiring every single day. And uh, the truth of the matter is that these people are passing away. That's People die. That's the, the, <laughs> Wait, that what? Works, that's no, the reality of, uh, of the world that we live in. Um, and so I cannot tell you with any kind of certainty what percentage of our clients come to us because of this. But we have so many organizations who phone us in desperation because someone left them a multi-hundred thousand or multi-million dollar bequest that they were not aware of. And they, they're freaking out because they're like, this is now in our checking account. We don't know what to do. We've never had this. It's a good problem to have, but it creates a whole bunch of other problems, right? And our biggest counsel is, is that you can't be like lottery winners, right? Um, so the, the information out there, yeah, absolutely, right? You have all of these organizations who violate that first rule in the question that we just talked about around the currency of trust by using that money like a lottery win and spending it. And when those organizations do that and they spend it on um, unsustainable infrastructure, buildings and FTEs and all kinds of other things, not to say that that's entirely wrong, but when they when they do that without a long-term plan, what we see is, just like lottery winners, a few years in, they can't sustain that infrastructure. They can't sustain that uh, the expense side of their budget. And as a result, 
they may not go bankrupt, but what they have done is eliminated that currency of trust with their community. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you, you did not spend that money wisely. So why should we entrust you? Why should we dig you out of this hole? Why should we entrust you with, uh, with more money? So the first truth is that this is already happening. Organizations are already screwing this up, (laughs) unfortunately. And so we need to intervene today. Organizations, absolutely, boards need to be prepared for the reality that this will happen. And that is the second truth, which is it is an unavoidable reality for your organization, meaning that it's not a question of if, but when your organization receives some of these types of gifts. Am I going to you know, promise that you'll receive hundreds or millions of dollars in gifts? Absolutely not. But as you mentioned, Kimberly, it's a T, it's trillions of dollars. So there are people in your donor database today who have placed you in their will and you do not know about it. You do not know about it and you cannot, you you can't do anything about it. You will find out when they pass away that you are in the will and there will be a check that comes from their estate and now you have to deal with it. So the number one recommendation that we make to every single nonprofit, regardless of whether they work with us or not, it doesn't matter. You have to be prepared. You have to be prepared for this eventuality. So whether you are a, um, a, you know, a database administrator, a donor services coordinator, uh, a grants, a grant writer, a development director, a board director, uh, or an executive director, it doesn't matter where you are in the food chain, you need to get your organization prepared. It means looking at that gift acceptance policy, developing out a plan for what happens when these gifts arrive. Where did that, where does that money go? Is it going into your bank account? Is it going into a brokerage account? Do you have an investment policy and a spending policy? What does that look like? And because you don't get to necessarily uh, plan for when that will happen, every organization should start that plan today. Every organization should start that plan today. And what we recommend is that every organization also have a mechanism for accepting gifts of stock or other simple types of assets. And the reason is because most of the wealth in this country is held in assets. Now, a lot of that is in real estate, in people's homes and whatnot, but there's a considerable amount in in marketable securities, right? And when people look at the market, they see, oh my gosh, this quarter, you know, it's gone down so much. But if you look at the broader picture of the market, where have we been uh, in the last 10 years or the last 20 years, which is the investment cycle of your donors, right? If they're 60 today, they've probably invested for at least 20, maybe 30 years, maybe more. So their investments have probably doubled, if not tripled, uh, even if they're in just broad-based index funds. And as I'm sure other guests have talked about on the podcast, there are huge tax advantages to making those types of gifts as opposed to gifts of cash. Mm-hmm. So rather than looking at what's left over in your checking account, what is available um, that you could give to an organization. So the key thing for your listeners to know is what are what are the ways in which we identify those and I think the key is listening for folks who who maybe complain about their um, their portfolio, like what's happening, because that indicates that they have it, right? 
Um, and it's also about listening for folks who say, I wish I could do more because that's an indication of affinity. They want to do more. They want to support the organization. They just may not have the right vehicle to do so. So the last part of your question, I know this is a really long answer, but the last part of your question I think is actually the most important, which is how do we talk to boards and executive directors around current funding versus future funding? And this is a really big issue. Um, so feel free to you know send this clip of the podcast to those folks. But the data on this is ex- extremely clear. The data on this is extremely clear. In 2007, the Indiana School of Philanthropy, uh, IUPUI, did a study on donors who made planned gifts and how their annual giving related to that. So this is, you know, more than a decade ago uh, that that data came out. And you can go find it. It's on their website. Um, and it, it studied t- 2,000 people. Um, and if they had a gift in their will, their average annual gift was almost was, was more than double what they um, had what annual fund donors had if they did not have a gift in their will. So that was a long time ago. I'd say, cheering, eh, it's a, a old data. It's not helpful. Well, Dr. Russell James did this with twenty thousand people, following them the same question every two years, collecting data after they die, looking at the same people who made a gift. And uh, prior to making a gift in their, a planned gift or like a gift in their will, and then afterwards finding essentially the exact same result. So prior to making a planned gift, their average annual giving was $4,210. After making a planned gift, it was $7,381, an increase of, of an average of over $3,100. The data is incredibly clear on you are not cannibalizing annual fund by talking about and engaging in plan giving. You are what my professors would talk about in behavioral science, engaging in sort of the sunk cost fallacy, right? So if I give to an organization that I care about on an annual basis, yay, that's great. And I love doing it. And it's fantastic. But once I make that planned gift, I have a vested interest in making sure that that organization succeeds. I I'm, I'm, putting more and more money into that organization because I have a long-term commitment, a long-term plan. And so there's a cognitive bias, if you will, that plays a part. Now, Dr. James doesn't talk about that necessarily in, in his research, but you, I would pull out the research, do the thud <laughs> factor on the boardroom table <laughs> and say, this is really clear. We have to be doing this not only because we don't necessarily have a choice, but also because it will increase our annual giving if we do this correctly. So that's, I think, the best way of demonstrating that to board members and and senior staff. I'm just writing down the thud factor because I think that it could either be a great new show, a (laughs) reality show where nonprofit... um, workers are trying to convince people to do things are also a fantastic podcast. But the idea, and if you're listening to this, as many of you I know are, you're primarily a grant writer, you're like, 
that's not for me. That's for other people who like to talk to people. Well, you are a researcher and you can find this research. You love to write and you're a persuasive writer. And you may even some among you, God love you, are really into writing policies and procedures. These are all crucial behind the scenes things. Because if you think that you don't have a voice you do, you're just maybe using it in a different way. And Sharon, I'm going into all this detail because there are a lot of grant writers who are introverts and I'm trying to just offer them ways to get up on that. Me too. Absolutely. And so that's a real big challenge. Let me add something for Please. the grant professionals uh, specifically. I will share the research with you so you don't have to like go mm -hmm. add more work to your plate, but it'll make it very easy for you to find it. But here's what I would say to grants professionals. Grants, um, especially we work with some organizations who have been very heavy on grants. They've had really successful grant professionals. The challenge is with reimbursable grants and with um, grant funding that is uh, potentially tenuous, the organization needs to have yes. other sources of income. Sure. Not the least of which is in order yes. to pay their grant <laughs> writers and continue to provide increased you know, salaries and, and benefits to their grant writers. So you have a vested interest in bringing these tools and this research to your organizations to help you, you know, continue to, to have um, salary increases and resources that would enable you to do your job even better now that the organization has greater flexibility in its fundraising budget. So we have a lot of organizations, you know, obviously most grants can't be, grant funds can't be invested, particularly if they're reimbursable, right? right. Um, there are some multi-year grants where we've seen particularly from private foundations where they'll let you uh, invest some of it. And we have very conservative cash management scenarios for, for some of that stuff. But for you personally, this is a way to demonstrate your out-of-the-box thinking, add value to your organization, really demonstrate your understanding of the overall financial picture of the organization and, and add value. So I, I hope you, you follow that research and continue to, um, to make that available to your leadership. And we'll gather that research and either put it in a blog post or make it available on our website in a way that's going to be easy for you to create your own FUD factor. Yes. Because, yes, because thud. Mm -hmm. Kimberly has found Very the name of her new reality show. Thud <laughs> factor. Thud factor. I'm digging it. I should have trademarked this. I, I, I'm sorry, I, but I'll, I'll certainly give credit. I appreciate it. Oh, certainly, certainly funny. we'll be happy to do that. That and a bus token, right? Right. <laughs> Maybe two bus tokens. I don't uh, know. I'm feeling it. I'm uh, feeling it. Well, Thank you. So generous. You recently <laughs> presented at the Fundraising Everywhere Summit about decolonizing nonprofit strategy and strategic planning. And you talked earlier offline about how that's, we could have a whole podcast on that. But if you could kind of give us a thumbnail explanation of this concept and how this huge wealth transfer over the next 25 years affects this. And before we jump into that, I just want to point out to our listeners, if you um, want to go back, I think it was season two, yes. Amanda, where we where we had Edgar Villanueva on to talk about his book. Um, Colonizing that, Wealth. The title just went right out of my head, Decolonizing Wealth, Decolonizing Wealth, which is now out in its second edition. So mm -hmm. if this is striking a chord with you, um, we have some other episodes for you to listen to. And it's a fantastic book. So 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm speaking at right after Edgar in um, a conference later this month. So uh, excited to hear about the new pieces to the book. But um, so uh, there may be some overlap. I um, uh, it's been a while since I've uh, I've listened to that episode, so I don't remember exactly what he said. But I think the key um, kind of high level understanding of this concept is that there's no place on earth that has not been touched by the yeah. impact of colonization. So I'm an uh, uh, you can't see me, but probably figured out from the name. I'm an immigrant. Uh, my family immigrated uh, from India in the 1970s. So we were, um, India was colonized by the British and um, continued to be colonized through the 1940s, um, independence in 1945. So I occupy a very weird space in life because uh, my parents were under the British Raj and then they moved to the United States and we are now settlers in uh, and having been colonized, it's a very uh, a strange experience. But what I think is important for everybody to understand is that so much of what we think about, how we think about it, how we talk about concepts, whether it's in nonprofits or in other spaces, has so much to do with the colonial power that in, infected, infused every part of daily life. Um, and so the way in which I think about that philosophically to answer, you know, the why question, Kimberly, is um, there are three components of the remnants of colonialization. So there aren't a lot of colonies left today, sort of not in vogue to call something a colony. So there are other aspects of that. But the remnants of what colonization have left fall into three big buckets. One is what is axiology. And that is the idea of what we say has value, what things have worth. And that affects what we prioritize because we say that certain things um, are valuable and they're the, the reason why those things are valuable have a lot to do with what colonial powers determined as valuable. So these assets, these natural resources, um, but then going into like time as a resource. So how efficient are we with time? Those are very specific types of values that are not universal and not original. So we need to be mindful of that. The second is epistemology. So how do we know that certain, how do, how do we know things? How do we learn things? How do we think about uh, uh, of, you know, those kinds of concepts? And then ontology, um, which is generally on being and becoming, what what are the, 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 the ideas of, of who we are and how, how we occupy space. This is way more than your podcast listeners were probably intending um, to engage in while they're they never doing know what tours. they get when they tune but in. So you're good. The, <laughs> well, and the, I, yeah, please go ahead. No, that was it. I was just going to say, let's bring it. So the, these are all, I'm throwing this out here at a very, you know, very brief way, because I think it's important for people to research this and understand when it comes to something like grant writing, for example, the language choices that we make are all formed under the basis of a colonial veil. So the example that I use in the talk is like a telescope. So as fundraisers, as grant writers, you know, as anyone, we're looking through a telescope 
and the colonial veil is like a lens at the front end of the closest to your eye that shapes everything else. And there are so many other pieces, the economy and politics and social beliefs and uh, the enlightenment and scientific thinking and all of that, that shapes everything that we see. So whatever we're, whenever we're looking out at the world, all of these biases and influences affect a whole bunch of our thinking. So when it comes to strategic planning or even very specifically like grant writing, um, think about the language choices that we use around like, for example, a process and outcomes and um, evaluation or, or something like that. These all have, these are all coded language concepts, right? What is, what's a measurable goal? Um, what are priorities for implementation? So all the concepts that we talk about, so, uh, you know, if you're a grant writer, you're looking at a strategic plan and a development plan, what are nonprofit strengths? What are weaknesses? What are opportunities? What are threats? How do we define those things? And more importantly, why did we define a strength as a strength or a weakness as a weakness? Let's go there. Right. So a lot of times organizations think of, you know, their brand as their strength or their people as their strength. And there there may be, you know, uh, external threats. But are those actually external threats? Are they really? Mm-hmm. How, yeah. Who says? Why? Why did we say that this was a weakness of our organization? I, there's brainstorming that goes into any SWOT analysis. But when you unpack that, it tells us more about what we value as a society, as a people. And a lot of times when we get into it, there are concepts that aren't really weaknesses. They're actually strengths. But we, somebody else has told us to code that as a weakness. Let me give you a really specific example that I use in the talk. Uh, organizations that combat homelessness, for example, are faced with the quote unquote weakness of the inability to scale. It's really hard to scale solutions to homelessness because it's you got to there's transitional housing, there's permanent housing, all you know people that go into this, but. If you look at the academic research around solving homelessness, uh, all of it really indicates that it's a very messy, very personal, very time-consuming process to truly get someone through transitional housing into permanent housing. That's not a weakness. That is the strength. Sustainably moving someone through the transition of homelessness is not a, is not a weakness. And having very local organizations that know who is at risk of facing homelessness and being able to intervene in that requires a lot of people, a lot of um, resources in order to do that. But some organizations, some foundations, some, um, some you know board members may say, we need to rapidly scale this so that we can sh- shove a lot of people through this process and do so very quickly. Is that really what we should be doing? I, I mean, I have trouble marrying that with the research and I have trouble marrying that with my personal values around what is the best for each one of those people that's struggling through a period of homelessness. So I think we have to, as as grant writers, as fundraisers, look at all of the elements of these pieces and say, let's reset and say, 
are these things the things that we truly do value and care about and revamp the entire strategic planning process to reorient how the organization's trajectory goes. Don't forget that a lot of strategy, a lot of reporting had its roots in colonial era, right? Like the reason why we have annual reports, that kind of nomenclature, not literally why we have them today, but the origin of an annual report was because landholders in Europe owned plantations in the United States and needed a physically mailed annual report of how much land, how much production, how many people, how many slaves did you have? How is my investment doing Hmm. in this? And they were quite literally the origin of the absentee landlord. And that's why these people shipped an annual report to report on your investments doing well. Here's what we had. And we have to increase production of cotton. We have to increase production of rum. Like that was, and you know, decrease expenses, increase revenues. That was the model. There's a great book um, called Accounting for Slavery by Caitlin Rosenthal. Will blow your mind. It's very accounty. Um, like she talks about the accounting work that goes mm-hmm. that went into the the slave trade, and it is super specific. Like sure. if they had Excel, Excel spreadsheets back in the day. They would have jammed them out and had all kinds of formulas. And it is, and she'll show you like in the book pictures of what looks like spreadsheets. And it is quite literally frightening. But how much of that are we just passively replicating in our processes in organizations today without unpacking? I'm not saying it's completely wrong. We need to throw every metric and every evaluation out, but let's at least have a critical lens on this. Let's Mm -hmm. evaluate this. So, more than you bargained for, but I, I think it's a fascinating topic, something I love researching. It's I can't thank you enough, and I'm sure that our listeners will feel the same way. Anytime we can really dig into a topic, Amanda and I joke about, she's like, well, I'm, I was a rule, rule follower, you know, and, and, and a lot of grant writing and fundraising is following these rules, but to dig behind Ooh. the rules and take a look at, hmm, why are we doing this? And do we have to? To me, um, I think that's just as important as you need to write a well-researched, yes. well-crafted case statement. But you need to kind of dig behind it and see, do we need to keep doing it this way and why? So I'm hoping that that's a piece of what this podcast brings to folks, as well as the how-tos. And you do a wonderful job with it. So I'm glad that you're unpacking these things, because I think a lot of times we get so far down the tactical route that we're just saying what works what works without mm-hmm. asking why, why does it work yeah well, why does it work so easy, it especially work earlier in, in your place. career right. to be so focused on you've got these we've got to hit these number goals if i don't bring in this much money someone doesn't have a bed to sleep in someone doesn't have food and so you're just your head down in your oh, you know that too and, I don't and so have you a just job. head down doing the work that that's yeah. i think that's why i was such a rule follower i'm, I'm gonna meet those goals and objectives i'm gonna make them happen i'm gonna make them happen yeah. She's also a really nice person, <laughs> well, y'all, straight up. But yeah, you're right. It's <laughs> you need other people sometimes to like, hey, have you ever stopped to ask why? Because if it's easy not to see it when you're bogged down in the trenches. So So I I wish we could have like a whole series on this and yes. maybe we will one day. But um smarter <laughs> people than me, for sure. Well, I also like I equate having this podcast working with Amanda, doing all these things. I love 
I love working with people who are smarter than I am on on these different topics because that's the way I better myself. Yeah, me too. Um, so it's just a it's just a real it's a real honor. Um, as we wrap up, I know even before we started recording, you were like, and I'm presenting here, and I'm going there. You're a busy man. So um, what's coming up for you sort of toward the end of, uh, of uh, 2022, moving into the first quarter of 2023? And where can people find out more? Absolutely. So um, I I say this with all humility. I, I don't really understand why people keep, I don't understand why you all. Uh, oh, sure. um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak uh, and talk about these things, but I also use it as a learning opportunity. So thank you all for having me and, and for asking these questions because it helps me kind of reform how I'm thinking about it and pushes me into um, asking additional questions. But I'm... Um, I, I speak pretty regularly, so if you follow me on LinkedIn, it's my name, which is really hard. You know, it's unique enough that you'll find it. Um, and I typically post in advance about where I'm speaking. Um, I don't. Um, I I'm, I'm sure there's something in early 2023 that I haven't thought of yet, but um, <laughs> it's it's relatively regular. There, the the firm is at endowmentpartners.com. So if you're interested in learning more about some of that stuff, we'd be happy to have a, a conversation with you. Um, we are we only work with nonprofits and, and foundations, so this is our wheelhouse, and we have very personal, very specific, customized conversations with folks. Um, but if we can be, if we can help you, point you to some other resources, uh, let us know as well. I'd love to be able to do that. So you can reach out to me on social media, or um, I have a, my own website where I throw some stuff up, and and that's cherryandkoshi.com. Great! Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really do appreciate it. It's uh, it's always helpful to think through these issues, and and I just really appreciate what you two are doing in this space. Right. So thanks we for your hard work. It. And that, the, talking about learning all the time. That's what we love having guests because I don't know if you, Kimberly and I were both taking notes on several things. I know oh, this is me. I'm taking notes. Y'all can't and see. I especially what I'm love when I've got a new down, book I have down. to check Get out. Down. So thank you for that recommendation. So anyway, absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us. So thanks again for listening to us, maybe laughing a little with us or just putting up with us. We just we just really appreciate you as listeners and your continued support is the reason we will be back for season six. I can't even believe I'm saying that. Um, one thing, if you'd like to do something to help out, we sure would appreciate it. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, if you could leave a review there of our podcast that would help us out a lot. It helps the podcast out a lot in the um, almighty algorithm and helps other people find us. If you listen to us on Spotify, please follow and share the show with your friends. This all just helps grant and fundraising professionals like you find us. Thank you again to our season five sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We so appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website at dhleonardconsulting.com to download their latest free resources today. We're so honored you chose to spend time with us today and hope you tune in for our next episode. The last one for season five, where grant writing gurus share their favorite tools and tricks for getting it done. We'll see you then.